invite you to turn with me, if you would like, to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 7. Uh, the text that was just read for us will begin at verse 36. As we are walking through the Gospel of Luke through this season, as we enter into Easter here in a couple of months, we notice a few things. Here, we see throughout Luke's Gospel that Jesus likes to eat. I mean, he seems to be feasting an awful lot, dining with the unlikeliest of characters. Right before the passage at hand here, Jesus is maligned by the crowds and religious leaders as one with a reputation as a glutton and a drunkard, uh, a friend of tax collectors, <gasps> you know, a friend of sinners. That's his reputation. And here we find him at table with this Pharisee by the name of Simon. And at this table, Jesus displays his grace in receiving sinners. And then he also shows us what it is to receive him. His grace in receiving sinners and what it is to receive him. So Luke invites us to sit with Jesus and to dine with him, to learn what it is to walk after him. To that end, will you join me with a word of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have given us your Son, who is the living Word. As we come to your Word now, divide our hearts and souls, that you might address the morrow of our hearts. Help us to be attentive to your truth, to be receptive of any rebuke, and also uh, eager to walk humbly after you in the forgiveness that is ours through Jesus Christ. Draw near to us in the reading and hearing of your word that might, we might be changed into the image of your dear son, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's get right into the text, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. As we get into this story, I just want you to answer for yourselves this question here. Um, if you spend a fair amount of time or some time in the kitchen, are you more of a scientist, chef, or are you more of an artist? It's important to know because when these two get together in the kitchen, chaos ensues. You need to know where you fall. If you're glued to the note card or maybe the allrecipes.com printout, if you're fond of teaspoons and, and you actually sift dry ingredients together, proper measure and proper order, there's a good chance you're a scientist in the kitchen, and this can be very good. Now, if you occupy the realm of dashes or splashes, and you, your measurement of accuracy is a finger dip in the batter applied to the tongue, your kitchen is probably a mess, and you are a culinary artist. There's a gradation between these two I recognize, but it, 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 which do you favor? Are you more of a kitchen artist or a culinary scientist? See, the thing about the, this kind of approach to cooking and, and feasting is this. Both chefs on the ends of the spectrum desire the same thing, don't they? Don't they want a delicious feast? Don't they desire a home that is warm and receptive, hospitable to those who would enter in? and exit with bellies full and souls satisfied. Now, if Simon here, this Pharisee in whose house we enter into, if he were found in the kitchen, you can guess which kind of a chef he would be. 
surely he's a culinary scientist. He would follow the recipe to the letter of the law. And like any chef, he wants others to enjoy the feast in the same way. You've got to follow the rules of the recipe. Simon is hosting Jesus, and there's others in the community joining them to recline at table. It's a relaxed hospitality. It's a comfortable welcome. It's generous repose, whether they're actually in the house gathered and reclining at table or out in the the courtyard gathered to to dine together. Feasts like these were, were common, and they were a community affair. People would look in. People would, walking by, would maybe stop in. Simon invited this Jesus who was a a known drunkard and a glutton. He identifies himself with the worst of all people. And to our surprise, we read of a woman who is known as a sinner. She enters in. And what's maybe surprising to us is that no one really seems to be surprised to see her enter in as she approaches Jesus. Again, verse 37 The woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet, anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is touching him. For she is a sinner, this woman of the city. She wasn't following the recipe of social convention. Were she the cook for this feast, her artistry would leave the, 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 the kitchen surely a disaster. I mean, what a scene she's putting on here. She's approaching the guest, Jesus, who's reclining at his side, his head to the table, his feet behind him. She's standing there, and she begins weeping, and she's weeping, and she continues to weep, and you can just picture the scene, you know, can somebody please pass the peas? Where, where does that fit in at this scene? Her sorrowful tears begin to baptize Jesus' unwashed feet, and she kneels before him, and then she lets down her hair. I noticed that none of you gasped. None of you are really put off by that. But in that society, there might have been an audible gasp, for no woman would do this in public. And then she begins to kiss Jesus' dusty feet. Expensive ointment. She begins to anoint his chapped toes and cracked heels. Liquid light glorifying the light of the world. She has given herself unreservedly to this Jesus, regardless of the cost, and the cost was great. So Simon takes a quick glance down at the recipe card before him, and he seems to have concluded from this interaction at least one thing. This Jesus, he's not a prophet. Is this the reason Simon invited Jesus into the house? Is this his idea of hospitality to his visitors? to test this Jesus, to maybe set a trap for him, to confirm the suspicions that this Pharisee had. There's beauty in this scene, isn't there? There's beauty at the scale of a a Nebraska sunset or a glittering waterfall, and the beauty is unfolding before the eyes of Simon. And yet, what does he see? A feast ruined 
by a sinful woman and a false prophet. And Jesus reads the whole situation accurately. But, we, but Jesus doesn't outright rebuke the scientific chef here in his approach to feasting with Jesus. In the same way that Jesus doesn't deny association with sinners, tax collectors, he, he doesn't deny association with Simon either. He identifies with the self-righteous and the rejectors as well as those rejected by society. So rather than direct rebuke, Jesus, verse 40, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, say it, teacher. The, the, the question is, of course, one of gentle rebuke here, isn't it? And the aim of sweet or gentle rebuke is always sorrow over sin that leads to repentance. Sorrow over sin that leads to repentance is the aim of Jesus' Simon. I have something to say to you. There's a character from the recent series called Ted Lasso. And in there, there's a character in there, a psychiatrist, and, and she has this to say to, to, to her, her, her clients. She says, the truth will set you free. Sound familiar? The only thing she adds is that, but, but before the truth sets you free, first, it's going to tick you off. It's going gonna, it's gonna to meddle in your heart a little bit first, but the truth will set you free. And so Jesus lays down truth in parable form, verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Both characters here are in a great deal of debt. The one owes about two months worth of wages, and the other nearly two years worth of wages. And they're reduced to two options in this story, and this is a story of heart economics, isn't it? Jesus is telling us the story of heart economics, which debtor will love their forgiver all the more. In this story of heart economics, that's where Simon is invited. I have something to say to you, Simon. Now come on in. Enter the story and find your place. Jesus always does this, doesn't he? When somebody sets out to test him or to try him, the tables are turned. The heart of Simon is on display here. His conscience is on trial. Simon, which of these two will love their master more? Hmm, Simon, what do you say? Reader, what do you say? Verse 43. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. I don't know Simon's tone, but it does kind of read like the one... I suppose. Like, I see where you're going with this, Jesus. See, the economy of love makes no sense to the one not forgiven, nor to the one not forgiving. It makes no sense, the economy of love. Simon and the sinful woman here, they, they both receive Jesus into their lives in different ways, and their aims are dramatically different. The, the one approaches humbly and embraces. The other invites in in order to dismiss or to avoid. In order to dismiss or to avoid, the poet and author Flannery O'Connor puts on the lips of one of her characters by the name of Hazel Motes, describing him she, she writes this, he knew, he knew the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Simon agrees. 
what to do with this supposed prophet. Dismiss him. Avoid him. If he were a true prophet, he would avoid sin. He would not need to go to temple to be cleansed. But instead, this guy here is allowing himself to be touched by a sinner, her uncleanliness being transferred to him as no sound prophet would do. A good spiritual person could indeed look to this Jesus as as a helper of sorts. He's healed. Uh, Maybe you could look to even a life coach or a teacher, this Jesus here. But in order to be holy, you've got to do good. You've you've got to give full obedience to, to the recipe There's no need for this Jesus if one simply avoids sin. And this is the heart problem for Simon, which Jesus is approaching. The heart of Simon is laid on the table, and it's made evident to us that Simon wants nothing to do with Jesus as a a, a solution for his sin. He's got this heart problem, and the heart problem uh, of Simon is the same as our heart problem. We try to avoid sin, and often it's in order to avoid having to go to Jesus. But Jesus will not be waitlisted, nor will he be put off. Jesus turns Simon's attention now toward the one with the greater debt, in order that Simon might see himself more clearly. Verse 44, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered into your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus recounts this scene of what you might call holy hospitality. Both debtors in the parable owed a great deal. Their choices were reduced to either one, hopelessly attempting to repay an impossible debt to repay, or two, to plead mercy and grace from their master. For the Pharisee who was blind to the speck in his own eye, Jesus grasps the apparent plank in the woman's life and puts it before the crowd. No one present argued her sin, fought for her innocence. Everybody knew it. She didn't deny it. And yet Jesus upholds her as the heroine here. Simon had invited, and yet this host, he showed nothing but disrespect and even contempt for Jesus. But the woman, she assumed a posture of of the servant. She bows before Jesus in humility. She washes travel-worn feet with her own tears. She gives of herself at a great, great cost. Holy hospitality as a feast of faith, a receiving of Jesus as master, the forgiver of debts. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of salvation and of faith. The image of coming to Jesus in faith here. But for the proud and the self-righteous and the self-sufficient, this image is one of repulsion. And yet Jesus looks to her in love, sees her actions as lovely, and her faith as good. Verse 47, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives Sins. Now, wait a second. Who's, 
Who, who was talking about sins and forgiveness in this story? Oh, well, it was Simon, wasn't it? Wasn't he the one who saw her as a sinner and unclean? He's looking to the recipe and addressing the ingredients that are out of order, out of sequence, and yet he's missing, missing the point of the whole feast, which is love, grace, forgiveness. The guilt and shame of this woman's sin would have been transferred to Jesus as he touched or she touched him, right? So that unless both Jesus and this woman perform the ceremonial cleansings, their sin would remain, they would be unclean and socially outcast. But see, Jesus comes, even enters into the house of the Pharisee as the true temple. He enters as the Lamb of God who was slain for the forgiveness of sins. His rebuke of Simon is, is not because Simon followed the law, but because he trusted in the law for his salvation. In rejecting Jesus, Simon is throwing away the way to God. But the woman, in giving Jesus this holy hospitality, acknowledges her debt. And she acknowledges her inability to pay back wrongs having been done. And she pleads without words the forgiving grace of Jesus as he reclines at table to feast. Simon and those present contemplate the satisfactory nature of this feast. Simon would again be reviewing the recipe card, what we might call the law. And, and it's good to have the recipe it's good to have the law. It should be celebrated because the law is given by the chief chef, isn't it? But something at the feast was lacking. Measurements and order of ingredients are necessary, but they are not the aim. The aim is a feast and a feast of joy, a feast of love, in the hope of hospitality, a reception, one of the other in love. Simon's kitchen was spotless. But his feast was a shambles. The feast had turned to a famine apart from God's grace. Is there love and joy in our feasting with Christ and in his body? If not, where are we going wrong? The woman, she knew the recipe as well. She knew the law and she was crushed under the weight of her failure. Now perhaps you know something of that experience. But do you also know the artistry of conviction of sin? The delight and the beauty that is sorrow over our own moral debt. Have you tasted the freedom of self-forgetfulness modeled by this woman making a scene yet giving herself fully to Christ? Do you know something of the intoxication of renouncing self? See, the woman's kitchen was a complete and utter mess, and yet her feast with Jesus was infinitely satisfying. Verse 49, then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith required no verbal ascension. It was rather exemplified in her actions in bowing before Jesus and serving him in the sorrow for her sin and anointing of her hands. Your faith has saved you, 
go in peace. Lest we begin to see a new recipe. Oh, we've got to change the recipe here. We've got to change it now. Lest we see there's a new formula here. If we just follow this formula here, Jesus is not after always just right measurements of orthodoxy or the right mixture of devotional practices to merit a, a feast of salvation. As good and right as those things are, the faith that saves is this approach to Jesus in humility, this sorrow over sin, this confidence in his cleansing work of his forgiving love. It's a holy hospitality, receiving the feast that Jesus offers. And the aim of such feasting then is not only to feast with Jesus and with his body, with his people, but then to, to extend that feast to the world so that others might feast upon his grace, his mercy, and his love, which he had given in full measure to the sinful woman. Verse, chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. The last words that Jesus had to this woman is, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And the next thing Luke tells us is that grace and forgiveness fuels mission. Grace and forgiveness fuels mission, which is carried out in love. See, the 12 are traveling with Jesus to proclaim the good news that was just shown forth at this meal. The good news that would go throughout the region. And do you, who do you see with him and with them who fuel this flame? Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons were cast out. There was a, a non-Jewish woman by the name of Joanna, whose husband was a servant in the Gentile ruler's house. Then there was a certain Susanna, women whose society would have overlooked or at best ignored. They're the ones mentioned by name here in Luke's telling. These women cared for Jesus. These women, having received his grace and his love, his healing touch, extend that grace back to him in service to him and to his body, his people, as they provide for the needs of the mission and those who serve Jesus as well. We end our passage with the outward thrust of gospel ministry being carried out through the holy hospitality of women in service to Jesus Christ. And the connection to this gospel ministry is a wholehearted embrace of the forgiving Jesus Christ. This unnamed woman who is weeping at his feet, these three named women and others, they walk in a posture of humble service to their king and unto his kingdom. And it's that service is manifest in, 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 in tangible acts of care for his people and the furtherance of his gospel truth to those outside his kingdom. It's, you can't really add to it, right? It's a beautiful image. And all you need from the end of this sermon is to hold forth the image of this woman at the feet of Jesus and her being rising from the, the feast saying, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. And that's what we're left with when we feel or find ourselves short on love or indifferent to those who are overlooked or to those who we simply come into contact with. 
Do we know the forgiveness of Christ? Do we know the debt incurred in our own sin before God and before others? Pattern our weeks, our days after this woman's posture. There is something about a nightly confession, the act of kneeling before our God, before we sleep, confessing our wrongs, and then sleeping as those who are forgiven. In order that we might rise in the newness of life. As we do these rhythms of confessing our sins, I just encourage you to imagine or image the posture, the heart of the woman who comes to Jesus, who's the, the picture of joy and her feasting on his presence, his forgiveness, and the freedom that he affords. We often find it difficult to walk that way. We find it difficult to forgive. I think, often. I know I do. And so we're reminded of our prayers unto our Lord, which He taught us. Forgive us our sins, our trespasses. Forgive us our debts as what? As we forgive our debtors. The same measure with which we extend grace to others, extend that grace to us is what we pray in that prayer. If someone has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. Granted, forgiveness begins with this inner attitude of laying down our rights, of receiving others who have hurt us. And there's a reality in forgiveness that we will have to continue to forgive, because if you're like me, you'll play and replay situations and scenarios over and over again, and you have to go through the same rhythm, I forgive you. <laughs> and we do work with one another walk with one another in forgiveness. Our bodily actions of rising in forgiveness of sins every Sunday is to train us, to teach us, to remind us that not only are we sinners in great debt to one another and to our holy God, but we are a forgiven people who stand to serve one another and a watching world. The life of faith is a feast of love. And our kitchens are a wretched mess. But Jesus has come to prepare a feast for us in his grace and in his forgiveness. Will we not enter in? Will we not bring him our sorrows and our burdens? Will we not rest at his feet while suffering and sorrow linger? Will we not receive his promised forgiveness and his gracious words of assurance? Will we not rise to feast with our King, His forgiveness? And in all this, will we not call others into this feast to join us, to feast with us? In all of our rigid and frail attempts at obedience, in all of our messy attempts to love God and love others, will we not invite others in to feast with Jesus? Luke invites us in this story. Jesus invites us in this story. Come, rise to feast with your king. Come, eat and drink. Find rest and joy. Come, feast with King Jesus. Taste and see that he is good. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. 
We ask simply that you would apply it to our hearts, that our lives might be changed, to resemble Jesus more and more, that others might see our lives and give glory to you. In humility, help us to go forth from this place to serve one another in love, in grace, and mercy. In the name of Jesus, we pray all of these things. Amen.